Go ahead and grab your Bible if you've got one or a Bible app. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13 today. That is Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. Uh, and we basically, we've come to the heart of Hebrews. In terms of the structure, in terms of, you know, there's 13 chapters in Hebrews. We are in chapter uh, 8, but we're really in the heart of the letter. And we're in the center of this long section in the letter to the Hebrews that explains the high priesthood of Christ, something that most of us are not familiar with. And, uh, and yet it's something that, that is so, let me put it this way, it, it reveals the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in such a multifaceted and beautiful way that I, I hope we come out of this section of teaching on the high priesthood of Christ more appreciative of the person and work of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and, and what he's done, what he is doing right now, and what he will do in the future. And we're going to talk about all that as these sermons, uh, as we continue through this series. But what do we find in the heart of Hebrews? What do we find in the, in the center of this section on this teaching on priesthood? We find a new way of relating to God that is based on the work of our high priest in heaven. This is the whole point of today, is that smack dab in the middle of all this seemingly arcane, ancient uh, language and, and verbiage about priesthood, right smack in the middle of it is a new way of relating to God through the work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest who's in heaven. Uh, it's known as the new covenant. You've probably heard that language before if you've been around churches for a while, uh, it's called the New Covenant, and, and what we're going to see in today's passage is that this New Covenant is going to replace the Old Covenant, the Old Mosaic Covenant, which was the, the temporary arrangement through Moses, through the law of Moses that was given to, to Israel. And that brings up a great question. Have you ever wondered what is the relevance of the law of Moses, of all those commandments and statutes in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible? Have you ever wondered what the relevance of all that is to us today as Christians? I think about that a lot. In fact, Timon and I uh, got in several discussions in our, in our men's group about that. Uh, so we started reading a book, and it's, it's uh, published by Zondervan. And I love this series. It's called Counterpoints. But it takes different perspectives on different theological issues and it kind of shows you the best of all those lines of argumentation. And then they, those scholars get to interact with each other. They get to ask the questions that I don't know to ask about these various doctrinal positions. So there's one called Five Views on Law and Gospel. And if you're having any trouble getting to sleep at night, I would highly recommend this book. Uh, it, is, it is thick. Uh, as Timon and I have been um, commiserating about. But really, honestly, though, I, I really enjoy the book, and I'm almost done with it, uh, but it's been very enlightening for me. And uh, it, it has me thinking a lot about the relationship between the, the Old Covenant and, and the Old and New Testament, that language that we use for, for Testament. It's, it's the Old and New Covenant. That's what that is. The Old Testament is elucidating the old covenant and the the new testament is elucidating the the new covenant and so I, i've really been thinking a lot about this especially as i've been reading this book and i, I don't have it all figured out yet that, that's going to be a common theme you hear from me especially if you're new uh is that i don't have everything figured out doctrinally theologically in terms of my understanding of the bible 
Um, but I'll tell you this, what I am learning about this relationship between the Old and the New Covenant uh, and, and the relevance of the Law of Moses to us today is that the letter to the Hebrews in general and specifically the passage we're looking at today is really helpful in giving us a better understanding of those things. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the Greek word for covenant, and I'm not going to get into pronouncing that and everything else, but you just need to know this. In the New Testament, that word shows up 33 times. And more than half, 17 times, it shows up in the letter to the Hebrews. So do you think the author of the letter to the Hebrews had something to say about, about covenant? Absolutely. He talks a lot about the old covenant and the new covenant. And before we jump into all that, I, I want to return to a definition of covenant, because again, that's language that we're not super familiar with. There's a whole background, biblically speaking, to covenant. And I want to read, a, a, it's a definition I brought up by a scholar named Paul Ellingworth. I, I brought it up several weeks back. But it gives us a better understanding of what, what a biblical covenant is. What are we talking about in Scripture when we talk about a covenant? Paul Ellingworth writes this. He, he defines a covenant as, and I'm going to walk you through this. It's a complicated definition, but I'm going to hone in on a couple pieces. He says a covenant, biblically speaking, is a free manifestation of divine love. In other words, nobody's leveraging anything on God. Nobody's coercing God. This is a free manifestation of divine love institutionalized, meaning kind of arranged, organized, in an economy, and don't think like gross domestic product, think uh, a, a, an arrangement of, of how God relates to his people, okay? So it's, it's institutionalized in an economy whose stability and consummation are guaranteed by a cultic ratification. That just means it's, it's ratified, it's made good through... Um, Sacrifice the cult, uh, the cultists around the temple uh, in Jerusalem and in the heavenly tabernacle, which I'm already getting into too much detail, so don't fall asleep on me just yet. But, but all biblical covenants, the stability and consummation of them are guaranteed ultimately by the sacrificial death of Christ. And the aim, every time God, God doesn't arbitrarily make covenants with, with Noah or Abraham or David or or Israel when they're coming out of Egypt. Like God doesn't do this arbitrarily. It's always with the aim to make men and women live in communion with God, i.e. it's relational. We have a relational God to impart to them the treasure of grace and the heavenly inheritance. Did you know that God is a personal God? And did you know that God wants us as his creatures to experience the treasures of his grace? And the heavenly inheritance. So every biblical covenant is ultimately based upon the sacrificial death of Christ. Even the ones that came before Christ's death and resurrection. They're ultimately based upon his sacrificial death. The old Mosaic covenant that we're talking about today, it was conditional. In that it required obedience to the law of Moses. Which involved uh, priests offering Various gifts and offerings, specifically animal sacrifices, to cover over the sins of God's people. That was part and parcel with the Mosaic Covenant. But those animal sacrifices, as we see all throughout Hebrews, in this really this section on priesthood, those sacrifices, they weren't in and of themselves atoning for the sins of, of, of mankind. They were pointing forward 
to the ultimate atonement for sin, which would come through the sacrificial death of Christ. But the new covenant in Christ is unconditional because of the finished work of Christ. And we're going to see that in today's passage. The old covenant was conditional. The new covenant is unconditional because it's based on something that's happened, something that will never go away. And that is the finished work of Jesus Christ. If we miss this unconditional aspect, then we won't experience the full blessings of living in communion with God. Having this treasure of his grace, as Ellingworth puts it, and the hope of a heavenly inheritance of Christ. Do you all get that? If we reduce our relationship as Christians to a conditional arrangement with God, then we will absolutely miss out on the fullness of life that he wants for us and that he has made provision for so that we can enjoy. And this is why the author of Hebrews was so determined to explain the priesthood of Christ. That's why the longest teaching section in this letter is on the priesthood of Christ and the new covenant that he establishes through his death and resurrection and ascension, which is right at the core of this teaching on priesthood. In Christ, we have the better unconditional promises of God. And these these unconditional promises of God, they should fill us with, with love and joy and peace and hope. That's how we should live our lives based on, on these promises. So let's look at the earlier arrangement under the Mosaic Covenant, and then we're going to see how it compares to the new covenant in Christ. So the old covenant was inferior. That's a point that the author wants to make. It was inferior because of its conditionality, because it was conditional. Look at verses uh, 6 through 9 in our passage, Hebrews 8, 6 through 9. This passage, it begins by comparing the high priesthood of Christ, which John pointed out last week is invisible to us, right? It's not visible like the, the Levitical priests when they were running around the temple making animal sacrifices. It's, it's invisible. It's an invisible reality, but it's an invisible reality on which we must base our lives. And that's what John articulated so well last week. Uh, But this passage begins kind of closing out John's section, and it compares the high priesthood of Jesus with these Levitical priests who who were operating under the law of Moses under the old covenant. And, 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 uh, you know, you know this if you've been here the last several weeks, is that this comparison between the old and the new with regard to the priesthood is key to this guy's argument. So let me read it for us. It's uh, in chapter 8, verse 6. But now, the author writes as he pivots off of describing the the old Levitical priesthood, he says, but now he, referring to Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry. That's a a more excellent uh, priestly service, if you will, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. And this is the second time now in Hebrews we've seen that language, a better covenant. And then he goes on to to describe that covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, that is with, with the people, God's people, he, God says, and then this is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31 in the Old Testament. For he, God says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Remember, because of sin, they they had split apart into a northern and southern kingdom, and they had both 
uh, gone away because of their sin. They had, they had, uh, the northern kingdom had been conquered, and then the southern kingdom got conquered. And so he speaks of them as these two houses, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But eventually he's going to just refer to them as one. So we see this great re, re, um, reconnecting of, of Israel even in the language he uses. So he says, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care, uh, or depending on your translation, I had no regard for them, says the Lord. Now, this quotation that makes up most of our passage that I just read, uh, it's, it's from Jeremiah 31, and it refers, as you can tell, it refers to Israel's exodus from Egypt when God led their fathers, the Israelites, uh, by the hand, as he says, out of Egypt through the Red Sea along to Mount Sinai, and then gives his law, the law of Moses we refer to, he gives his law through Moses to Israel. And this established the Old Covenant, the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. That's what the Old Covenant is. That's when it started. But that Old Covenant required obedience to the law in order for Israel to enjoy communion with God. That is so key to understand. Now, they had another covenant in place already through Abraham that was unconditional. We're not going to talk about that today. But when God brought Israel and he formed a nation, brought them out of bondage in Egypt, took them to Mount Sinai, gave them the law through Moses, God established an old covenant that was conditional in terms of its blessings on the obedience of God's people to abide by that law. It was conditional. But as we see uh, uh, from the passage and throughout the Old Testament, this is really the story of the Old Testament, is that God's people failed over and over and over and over again by disobeying God's law until finally they were sent into Babylon in exile from the promised land, which is what we get to by the end of the Old Testament. And so the prophet Jeremiah, who lived right before and during this exile that happened in the 6th century B.C., when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and scattered the priests and deported everybody back to Babylon, essentially, Jeremiah the prophet's writing before and during this time. And so in those days, Jeremiah, and those are dark days for Israel, but in those days, Jeremiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he prophesies of a future day when God would enact a new and better covenant. Don't you know Israel was ready for a new and better covenant after all those hundreds of years of recognizing the weakness of that old covenant was their own sin, their own inability to obey God. This demonstrated that the old covenant was never meant to be permanent. Guys, we saw this in the quote from Psalm 110 about how, how God, uh, in, in, in King David's time, a thousand years before Jesus, God was already announcing that there's going to be a new priesthood. In other words, he's already announcing that the Levitical priesthood that was set up by the law was already out of date, in a sense. It was, already, it was temporary, looking forward to a better priesthood in Jesus Christ, the order of Melchizedek. We talked about that several weeks ago. Well, in the same way, the fact that Jeremiah, some 600 years before Jesus Christ, Jeremiah is saying that this old Mosaic covenant was never meant to be permanent since it could never provide a permanent solution to the problem of sin. 
And that's why Jesus, when he's, when he's ministering, when he's preaching and teaching, he, he, he keeps going after those, those Pharisees and Sadducees because they're clinging on to the Levitical priesthood. They were clinging on to uh, the Mosaic covenant, acting as though that were the permanent solution. And in order to do that, they had to be self-righteous about their obedience to the law. And Jesus came in and blew that whole thing up and said, no, these things were never meant to be permanent. Go back 500 years, go back 1,000 years. God had a better plan. The old covenant was inferior because it was conditioned upon the obedience of God's people. And folks, God's people, people are sinful. Think about marriage for a second. I think this illustrates it well. As Christians, we rightfully speak of marriage as as a covenant relationship. We we speak of the covenant of marriage. And we think of that rightly because we're, we're, we're thinking of it as an unconditional covenant between a man and a woman before God and these witnesses, right? When Stacy and I got married, we're coming up on our 14-year anniversary in August. Uh, when we got married, I actually, while I was typing this, I looked because I've got our wedding vows framed behind me in this, in this shelf. So I turned back, and, and, and this is actually what I promised. I promised to place her good above mine now and always, no matter the circumstances, to honor her, to love her, and to cherish her until death do us part. That was the promise I made to her. That was the promise she made to me. And what a blessing for each of us to know that the other will love us and honor us and cherish us for the rest of our lives in any and every circumstance. That's a good, solid foundation for marriage and that God's going to help us do that, obviously. But as any married person knows, and even if you're not married, you've seen marriage enough to know that it's really easy for one or both spouses to make marriage into a conditional arrangement, a quid pro quo arrangement. We've all seen how this works, okay? I'll honor, love, and cherish you if or when dot, dot, dot. And we reduce what ought to be an unconditional promise, an unconditional covenant between us into something merely conditional. And when marriage becomes a conditional covenant, I'm going to pop the bubble for you guys and just tell you something. It's going to blow your hair back because I know you didn't already know this. When you reduce marriage to a conditional covenant, everybody loses, okay? When there are conditions, I guarantee you that sin will find a way to spoil things. When there are conditions, sin will find a way to spoil things. That is, that is true uh, in marriage. It's also true, it was true in ancient Israel uh, under the law of Moses. When there are conditions, because of our sin nature, sin will get into those conditions, violate those conditions, and spoil everything. That's the nature of sin. That's what it does. We need something better. Folks, there was nothing wrong. I'm not trying to disparage the, the law of Moses or the Mosaic Covenant. As we see in the New Testament, that's grace. That was grace that God stepped towards this, this unknown people uh, that came from Abram, some random Gentile wandering around in Mesopotamia. And he created a people out of Israel and he showed his grace. And part of him showing his grace to Israel was establishing the Mosaic Covenant. It actually gave them a context to dwell 
to have their holy God dwell with them as unholy people. The sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and later the temple, all that was designed for the purpose of relationship. So let's not forget that the Mosaic Covenant was in itself grace. Okay, I'm not trying to disparage that at all. There's nothing wrong with God. It's not like that was his, his only plan and then it messed up and he's like, oh, I got to come up with a different plan. It was always meant to be temporary, but it was designed to point forward to the, the permanent solution to sin. That old covenant was inferior because it was conditional and it would eventually be replaced by something far superior. Um, the, <laughs> the author of Hebrews wanted his Jewish readers... We talked about this way at the beginning of Hebrews, but uh, the letter to the Hebrews, we can um, ascertain from the letter itself that it was primarily written to Jewish background believers in the first century, probably in a specific church. Okay, so these are Jewish background believers. These are people that are steeped in the Mosaic Covenant, the the Levitical priesthood, all these things. Okay, so he wanted the, the author wanted his readership, his audience to know that the old Mosaic covenant had been replaced by a far superior covenant based on the superior priesthood of Christ. And if he was writing, um, actually a lot of people go to this passage we're looking at today to support the fact that Hebrews was written before the fall of Jerusalem. So just to give you a short, quick little history lesson, uh, the Jews caused an uprising, and in the, the late 60s AD, so 66 to 80, 70, Uh, There was an uprising in Israel to try and gain back their independence from Rome. And Rome sent in three legions under the leadership of Titus, who would later become emperor. And they absolutely destroyed Jerusalem. They ripped apart every block and brick in the temple. They destroyed, they leveled the temple. They they destroyed the the, the sacrificial system. Uh, they ended the sacrifice in Jerusalem at the temple. They'd scattered the priesthood. Uh, they killed a lot of people. Um, that happened in A.D. 70. And so when we read this, a lot of people go, well, this is probably written shortly before that, uh, not too far before that, because it, it's, if the author was going to make that argument that, oh, the old system is going away, he'd probably go, see what happened in Jerusalem? There's not even a sacrifice anymore. There's not even a priesthood anymore. So he's probably speaking to these people, writing to them in the years just leading up to that destruction. Um, But think about it. If you're living in a world where there's still a priesthood in Jerusalem making animal sacrifices and you're a Jewish background believer who's new to faith in Christ, how tempting would it be to go, yeah, but what can I just go back to that? other older arrangement can't can't we just go back to gifts and offerings in the temple through the through the levitical priesthood that would be tempting for them right um but that would mean turning away from the finished work of christ and the unconditional grace of god that came through christ's sacrificial death for our sins that that old priesthood along with its animal sacrifices would soon cease altogether and if you if if you are jewish or you know anyone who's jewish uh, you know that Judaism today is very different than it was before the destruction of the temple. Um, there, again, there's no priesthood. There's no sacrifice. There's no way to do what God instructed Israel to do in the Old Testament today. And it's been that way for almost 2,000 years. That old system would soon cease altogether, but its replacement, this new covenant based on the sacrificial death of Jesus, will never, 
ever, ever come to an end. It can't. His work and service is in heaven. Nothing can touch that. No Roman legion, no nothing can put an end to this new relationship we have with God in Christ. And that's important for us to understand. There's nowhere else to turn. We sang about it a second ago. There's no place else to go for hope in this life except in Christ. And our faith in him makes us beneficiaries of the unconditional promises of God. It makes us a new covenant community in that sense. So we're going to turn now to the second half of our passage, and this spells out some of those promises. So the new covenant is far superior because it is unconditional. Look at verses 10 through 13. The author quotes, uh, again, he, he continues the quote from Jeremiah 31. And then he's going to sum it up. In the very last verse, in verse 13, he kind of sums up uh, his interpretation, his takeaway from this great passage. So starting in verse 10, it says, and this is God still speaking, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. So he's talked about the, the, the weakness of the old covenant, and now he's going to describe this new covenant. He says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Remember, the the law of Moses was written on on rock, essentially. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And then we have verse 13. The author writes, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Referring to that old covenant. The old covenant was conditional in the sense that it required God's people to do something. It required them to do the works of the law, to obey God's laws, right? But now Jeremiah describes this new covenant without any reference to conditions or requirements. Did you see that in there? It's, it's much like the covenant he made with Abram, with, who became Abraham. There's just there's no there's nothing for Abram to do in that covenant. There's nothing for these new covenant believers to do in this arrangement. There's no conditions. In other words, God just makes these promises. Listen to these. I will make this covenant. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write my laws on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Folks. These are the better promises on which the new covenant was established. And these are, these are incredible, unconditional promises. So let's think of them. I'm going to kind of group them together in, in three words. Let's think of these as renewal, relationship, and redemption. Renewal, relationship, and redemption. First, God is promising us. He's promising Israel, but through Christ followers of Christ are also beneficiaries of this. I want to make sure you understand that. The the new covenant was given to Israel, and that still pertains to Israel, but yet the church, through Jesus Christ, become 
a new covenant community as well. We, we benefit from the new covenant, all right? Just in case you're like, wait, didn't that quote, wasn't he talking to Israel? I want to clarify that. So as Christians, we experience the blessings of the new covenant. All right, so he's promising us renewal. When God promises to put his laws into our minds and to write them on our hearts, this is pointing to him internalizing his law, internalizing his will for us. In Psalm uh, 40, verse 8, it talks about, um, uh, my soul delights to do, the God, to do God's will. His law is written on my heart. So this, this, this language of God's law being written on our heart is all throughout the Old Testament. But it's the idea that he gives us a new nature, not a nature that's constantly trying to disobey God and turn away from God in its sin. He gives us a new holy nature that delights in doing God's will, just like Christ delighted in doing God's will. And I I want you to think about how this happens. How do we get this new nature? How do we get God's laws written on our hearts? Well, Ezekiel writes this incredible complimentary passage to what Jeremiah is saying. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, this is what the the prophet Ezekiel writes. He's talking about the new covenant. He, He says in verse 26, moreover, and this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then he says this in verse 28, you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Does that sound familiar? In that last verse I just read, Ezekiel's words are almost identical to Jeremiah's. And we see that language, by the way, of I will be your God and you will be my people. That stretches from the beginning of the Bible to the end, all the way to Revelation. We see that coming up again with that community in, that's described in Revelation. That's a new covenant community, just like the community we're going to see in chapter 12 in, in the book of Hebrews. It's a new covenant community. In both of these passages, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God promises an unconditional relationship and I love how he characterizes this new covenant community. What does he say? He says, they won't have to teach each other about the Lord because they will all know him from the least to the greatest. You know, there, there won't even be a need. And, and folks, this is, the new covenant is partially fulfilled today. We are already experiencing, he has already put his spirit in us, for instance, okay? He's already given us a new nature through faith in Christ. But the, the consummation, the fulfillment, the ultimate uh, fulfillment of the new covenant promises will be when Jesus Christ returns. It will be in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's when we will be resurrected and glorified and the old sinful flesh will be done away with once and for all. And yes, everybody in that community will not need to be taught about God, the Lord. They will know him and his son, Jesus Christ. I love that. Finally, God is promising redemption from sins. And this is like the crescendo. When you think about inner renewal and this this relationship, a, a lot of it is just revolving around this idea of sin. Remember, that was the problem with the old covenant. So what does he say he's going to do about sin? What is the permanent solution God's going to provide for sin in this new covenant? He promises redemption. 
He says, I'm going to be merciful to your iniquities and, and I will remember your sins no more. I will put your sins out of my mind for the rest of eternity. That's his promise. And, and without that unconditional forgiveness, we, we, we couldn't enjoy an unconditional relationship with God. That's, that's, that's one of the things we learn from the old Mosaic Covenant. Guys, if there's not some way to be forgiven once and for all, then there's no way for us to have a perfect, eternal life in relationship with God, our holy God. So he makes that happen. The new covenant is far superior to the old covenant because it provides unconditional renewal and unconditional relationship based on unconditional forgiveness. Would that not bring a smile to our face? Right? I think we hear this so often that we're kind of like numb to it, that we have unconditional forgiveness in Christ. Praise Jesus for that. Kids, praise Jesus that you have unconditional forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ based on his atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's awesome. I want to illustrate this by comparing the old Mosaic covenant through Moses to, um, of all things, blockbuster video. The old Mosaic covenant was the blockbuster video of biblical covenants. What do I mean by that? Back in the day, the Mosaic covenant was amazing. No other nation on earth had such a, a way of relating to God. I mean, it was grace, this Mosaic Covenant. It was awesome. Blockbuster was awesome back in the day, too. I mean, I used to love hopping in my two-door Civic Coupe, or actually, before that, my 1985 Lincoln Continental. Yeah. Uh, but jumping in that and driving up to Blockbuster, there was a Blockbuster, like there were like 9,000 Blockbusters around the United States. And I would go up to our local Blockbuster and I loved just like roaming around the aisles under the fluorescent lights, looking for that perfect VHS tape to bring home, to pop into my VCR and hope that somebody rewound. Somebody was kind to rewind, right? But, but then the technology got better, didn't it? I mean, now... We have access to every movie ever made with just a couple pushes of a button, a couple buttons on a remote. And, and they come right into our living room or wherever we are, on our phone even. So the technology got better. And there's no late fees, by the way, when you rent from Amazon Prime or whoever you, you get your movies from, okay? In fact, just the other day, uh, we were, uh, Stacy and I wanted to watch something. And so I was on Netflix and I just, with a couple buttons, I pulled up this documentary called The Last Blockbuster. Uh, have you seen this? It's, it's the last blockbuster in Bend, Oregon. Literally, it's the, the only one left of its kind. And out of like 9,000 plus at the height of the empire that was Blockbuster Video. And, uh, and it was really interesting. They interviewed one of the guys associated with the corporate stuff at Blockbuster. And he very matter-of-factly, they're like, hey, did you know there's this blockbuster in Bend, Oregon? And he's like, oh, wow, good for them. And they're like, you, th- you know, you think, you, you think it's making a comeback? And he basically put it like this very bluntly, very businesslike. He pointed out that nobody would drive to a Blockbuster nowadays unless it was for sentimental or nostalgic reasons. They just wanted to smell that, like, stale popcorn smell, you know, or smell or whatever. Um, or get some exercise walking around the aisles, I guess. But it was really interesting that he pointed that out. Nobody in their right mind would go, go to Blockbuster 
unless it was just nostalgia, all right? In other words, the new technologies have replaced Blockbuster, and there's really no good reason to go back to the way things were back in the good old days, in the 90s, for me. And we see the same thing in today's passage. The old Mosaic covenant was replaced by a new, better covenant in Christ, the new covenant. And so the author tells us, out with the old and in with the new. Uh, Again, most of us aren't tempted to turn back to the old Mosaic covenant. It's not like all of us have this Hebrew background and we're, we're tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood. That's, that's not something that most of us face, right, with its conditionality based on the obedience to the laws of Moses. But even so, we can still forsake our new covenant blessings by reducing our relationship to God into something that's inferior to what it ought to be. What do I mean by that? How can we reduce our understanding of our relationship with God to something inferior than what it ought to be based on the new covenant promises? Well, specifically, instead of embracing all of those incredible unconditional pro- promises that we just read, specifically the, pr- the unconditional promise of forgiveness of our sin. We, we, we put that promise aside. And what do we do? Even as Christians, we try to fix our sin problem ourselves. And what does that lead to? Well, one of two things. It leads to prideful self-righteousness because you act like you can fix the problem of your sin and you just hide it really well, which is what the Pharisees did. Or where does it lead? It leads to despair. I'm so wicked. I'm so filthy. I'm so sinful. That sin is so heinous. I've got to do something. I've got to clean myself up before I can go before God. I, I, I can't. He's so disgusted with me. I have to do something and there's nothing I can do. I can't fix myself. I've tried. I can't stop doing it. I can't. Huh, huh, huh. I'm, it's despair. It's, it's this place of hopelessness when we set aside the unconditional promise of God's forgiveness in Christ. Or it's just self-righteousness. I, I want to read you a quote by a Bible scholar who, named Ray Stedman. He was a really famous Bible preacher. He's passed away now. But I think it does really well to sum up one of the greatest benefits of the new covenant in Christ our unconditional forgiveness. Listen to what he writes. He says, any sin called to our attention by our conscience needs only to be acknowledged to be set aside. He's talking about us as believers. Any sin, no conditions on that. Any sin called to our attention by our conscience through the work of the Holy Spirit needs only to be acknowledged to be set aside, to be laid at the foot of the cross. Provision for God to do so justly rests on the death of Christ on our behalf, not on our sense of regret or our promise to do better. As Paul states in Romans 8.31, God is always for us. He is never against us. He does not ignore iniquity. This is so important, okay? He does not ignore our iniquity, but is merciful towards us. He's merciful towards our iniquities. When we acknowledge it, there is no reproach or replay. He doesn't keep replaying the film over and over again. Remember when you did that? I just want to put it back in your face just so you, it's like rubbing a puppy in the carpet. Um, He says there's no reproach or replay from, from God. We can live with a daily sense of cleansing 
by the precious blood of Jesus. And he, he finishes this. And I love this. He says, that will do wonders for our sense of guilt or inadequacy. Do you feel guilty or inadequate as a follower of Jesus Christ? Then go back to this passage. Embrace the promises. Embrace the unconditional forgiveness that God has given you in Christ. Uh, As we consider today's passage, I think it's important for us to realize that even the old Mosaic covenant was a manifestation of God's grace. I hope you heard that loud and clear. But it was never meant to be a permanent solution to the problem of our sin. It was only meant to point forward to that final solution in Christ. The new covenant, folks, has ushered in a new way of relating to God, which is based on the sacrificial death of Christ and His continuing work on our behalf in the Holy of Holies, in the heavenly tabernacle today, seated at the right hand of God the Father. The old covenant was conditional. It was based on obedience to the law, but the new covenant is unconditional because it is based on the perfect obedience of Christ and his sacrificial death on our behalf. Don't ever forget that. And when I do, remind me.